Welcome to Bear Books for the love of indie. We're here to highlight and amplify self-published authors. So welcome back everybody. It's season four of Bear Books podcast. I'm glad to be back. What about you, Daisy? I'm bleeding ecstatic. I've missed it so much. <laughs> no, it's been great. So what have you been doing then in the break? Come on, you must have been doing something exciting. Because we're doing the anthology this year, it's our first one. So the first one's always the most difficult because you've got all the formatting to do, all the layout to do, you've got to design it. Don't snore at me. Sorry, sorry. (laughs) I like all this geeky stuff. Thank you you very much. What have you been doing? Just my allotment, really. Lots and lots of growing, lots and lots of vegetables. As lockdown's eased, I've been able to socialise a bit more. And I went to the tennis in Nottingham. So I have done something really good. Oh, it was really funny. I need to tell you about this. <laughs> Ladies that lunch. So I went with a mate of mine to the tennis at Nottingham a few weeks ago. And at the side of us were sat two ladies at lunch. Socially distanced, of course, because there was four seats barriered off. Anyway, when we got there at 12 o'clock, they were drinking Pims. Other drinks are available. And they continued to drink Pims all the way through the first match. And then they decided they were going to go for lunch. And they came back at about half past five. Now, I don't think there was any food consumed at all in that lunch. And they were really, really loud. So it was obvious. Well, it was obvious them staggering up the stairs trying to get to the seats that they had more than a few beverages at lunchtime (laughs) and not much food. Anyway, they started talking and the umpire turned around and glared at them. A little bit further on, the tennis players stopped serving and glared at them. The umpire asked them to shut up. Two stewards turned up and then eventually a security guard turned up and evicted them from the stadium, which I thought was absolutely hilarious. That's dreadful. It was funny. It was really funny. (laughs) Kind of serves them right, like. (laughs) Yeah. So that was more exciting than formatting and... It was definitely, it does sound more exciting than formatting. I have been on a little mini holiday. Good. I went to Wales, which was absolutely beautiful. I went to see the dams and I went to Aberystwyth one day to see the sea. And it was really nice because we did manage to catch some sunshine. And I'll tell you what I did see for the first time in my entire 27 and a half years of life. <laughs> Sorry, what? <laughs> Sorry, what? What? <laughs> Anywho. I'll tell you what I did see for the first time in my life is a rainbow that didn't go like an archway, like a bridge, but was flat in the sky. Okay. So like a frisbee, but so you could see the whole circle in the sky. I wondered wondered where I put my halo. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) So because I'd never seen this before, did not know it was a thing. So I had to Google it, and apparently it's called a fire rainbow. Oh, wow. And it's when the icicles in the sky are at the optimum and the sunshine and the clouds for this to actually work. And I only saw it because I was laying on a bench in the garden because it was a particularly nice day. And there were quite a lot of clouds, and I've never seen anything like it. And I was absolutely amazed. So did you also get to read any books while you were on holiday? Yes, I did. But yes, I bloody did. The internet was rubbish. So what I did was I read today's book that I'm reviewing, Reliance by Paul McMurrah. I've also already read The Porter by Rachel Parsonage. And I've also read COVID Blues and Twos, which is full on erotica. I actually, I did have a, a quick look at the uh, the write-up about the book that you're, uh, you're going to be uh, 
reviewing today. And to be quite honest, it didn't surprise me that you picked this type of novel to read a bit dark, a bit dystopia, a bit yeah. morbid. Yeah. And it's it not was morbid. No... I don't think it is morbid. No. I think it's it's got such a massive dose of this could actually happen that it was full on terrifying when you thought about it for more than five minutes. Yeah, there's a the few points I want to bring up when we uh, when 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 you've sort of done your review and yeah. you've you've done your bit of reading. But it didn't surprise me either uh, with the, the author's nationality. She's staying true to your Irish roots with the first book of the uh, first book <laughs> yeah. of the podcast. Absolutely, I am. Yes. Brilliant. So, what did you think of it? Let me tell you. Here we go then. My first personal review for season four, and it's for Reliance. It's written by Paul McMurray. It's sold as a dystopian thriller about the rapid collapse of society following a solar storm that knocked out the electricity on Earth. When I started this book, I thought the rather lengthy explanations about the solar storm and the resulting power cut was a bit long-winded, but, and I don't say this often, I was wrong. When I think of a power cut, the first thing that comes to my mind is, we'll need candles, we can't watch telly, and flipping egg if it's off along the fridge-freezer or defrost. And that's about the extent of it, really. Apply that to a global scale, and for more than the usual few minutes or hours, and the ramifications can be terrifying life-threatening and the makings of a bloody good read. And while this is a work of fiction, it could conceivably happen. That is a damn scary thought. Just think, ATMs stop working so you can't access your cash. Now, while you may think that's not much of a biggie, imagine you're a parent of a new baby and you need nappies or formula. You go to the shop, but the shop can't take card payments. They have no electricity, so it's cash only. And that's just the beginning. Let's stay with the shop a minute. If the shop has no generator, the freezers and the chillers will shut down. The storage in the back will also shut down. The food will go to waste if it's not sold, so the shopkeeper will have to either give it away or throw it away. Electric shutters won't work, so security is shot. Let's stay with security then a minute and think. Prison, security doors... Staff that can't get there because petrol pumps work on electricity. Imagine the food supply for several hundred inmates dries up. Do you lock them in and leave them to starve? Do you let hundreds of criminals loose all at once? Doesn't bear thinking about, does it? There are no mobile phones. How many of us still have an old-fashioned and wired telephone at home? So at ground level, we've got desperation, fear, looting, crime without consequence... Oh, and you want to hope you're not in a lift when the power goes. In the skies, the solar storm would cook everyone inside of an aeroplane like it was a giant flying microwave. How do you get them to emergency land when communications don't work? This story is set in Ireland. The main characters in the book are real, relatable people. We follow Simon, Martin, Lisa and Derek through the book, all very different people with their own struggles to live through. For me, George, who comes in later in the story, he tugged right on my heartstrings. It's cleverly written and McMurray entwines our characters' lives with a natural fluidity. When I started this book, I was worried about the pace being a little on the slow side, but without that full understanding of the solar storm, the rest of the story would have seemed contrived, which it totally wasn't. So a thanks to Paul McMurray from me for making sure I fully appreciated the tension and the drama. 
Oh, and huge thanks also for the bonus short story at the end, Dr. Death, which left me with a lump in my throat and made George my favourite character across both stories. I fully recommend adding this to your reading list. Indie authors rock. Really good review that, Daisy. It sounds actually quite a controversial subject, quite a controversial book, and I've got loads to comment on later. However, have you got a little snippet of that book that you can read out for us? The bit of the book that I'm going to read to you is just after one of our main characters, Lisa, arrives at the prison to check on her brother, Ray. He works there. She finds the prison gates shut and chained together, but there's a notice in the guardhouse window. So she gets out of the car to have a look at what the note says. Two other men followed the first out of the guardhouse. The first was a short, round bull of a man, all shoulders and no neck. The next guy was taller, dressed a little neater in a light blue shirt. It had short grey hair which probably added to his air of authority. The tall grey-haired man smiled, which accentuated a nasty-looking facial scar. It's all right, love. Sorry if we alarmed you, he said, as the three men slowly edged forward. Lisa continued to take small steps back. She fought the urge to look around at her car. The tall man continued in a civil tone. We're contractors working in the prison during the power cut, he said, smiling. The other two nodded and smiled too. Bullshit, thought Lisa. She could feel her heart thundering in her chest. Would you be able to give us a lift into Belfast by any chance, he said. Our van broke down. He could see that his ruse was not working and the three of them hastened their advance slightly. At that instant, the facade of civility shattered and Lisa turned and sprinted for her car. She hit the key fob as she ran and the lights flashed. She could feel the presence of at least one pursuer close behind her. She did not look back. Focus, focus. At any second she expected to feel a hand yank her by the hair or be tackled to the ground. She willed her legs to keep pumping. The car was passenger side onto her. Do I go round the front or the back? Front or back? She focused on what she needed to do. Round the bonnet, open the door, jump in, lock the door. She was sure the hand was nearly on her. She wanted to look back. She could hear him breathing. She wanted to duck, front. She reached the car and slid her hands across the bonnet to slow her momentum. She allowed herself a glance as she turned. He was there, right there, three feet, two feet, within arm's length. He had her. As she reached for the handle of the door, she expected her arm to be ripped away. He too used the bonnet to slow himself for the turn, but as he rounded on her, his foot caught the curb and he tumbled. He rolled onto the grass verge. Where's the other one? Lisa grabbed at the handle and looked over the roof. The bull was charging. His arms were out to the sides, giving his girth space to churn as his legs did their best to keep him in the chase. He was close, but she could make it. The fast, bald one regaining his footing. Get the door closed, get the door closed. Lisa was certain that a hand would grab the door before she got it slammed shut. He was right there. He must have missed the handle by a fraction of an inch as Lisa jerked it shut and clicked the lock button on the key fob, looking in a panic to make sure she'd hit the right button. The instant she heard the click of the lock, she saw him tugging on the handle. 
On the passenger side, the fat bull slammed into the passenger door. His sweaty pink hands slapped on the window. Open the fucking door, you bitch, he screamed, his face about to explode. Lisa scrambled with the fob and unfolded the key. She allowed herself a quick look to her right. Where did he go? She jammed the key in the ignition and turned. The window beside her exploded and her head snapped to the side. She stomped on the accelerator as the bald guy's hand grabbed for the steering wheel. The car lurched forward and he lost his grip. He hopped and then sprinted alongside the car, his face twisted in rage. Lisa accelerated hard, the engine screaming for her to change gear. A glance in her mirror confirmed that the bald one and the fat one had given up their chase after a few yards. The tall guy stood with hands on hips. He hadn't taken up the futile chase. All three faded into the distance as she raced away. The wind rushed through the missing window. A blanket of tiny glass cubes covered the interior of the car and pulled in her lap. That's a very thought-provoking book, that. Yeah, it is. And the little extra story at the end um, about Dr. Death, it just, it rounds everything off because one of my favourite characters, as I said in my review, George, um, Dr. Death is the end of George's story and what happens to Dr. Death, who happens to be one of the prisoners, actually, that had been locked into the prison. What would you do if you were a prison guard and the electricity went and you had 900 souls in a prison? Do you let them go? You can't let them go. What about the petty criminals, though? Well, I think this is where me and you... Not everybody's a murderer or a rapist or, you know, there are petty criminals in prison that have done stuff that didn't affect anybody really and that aren't a danger, in inverted commas, to society. Petty crime? What do you call petty crime? Like fingered tea leaves that have just nicked stuff one time too many, so they're teaching them a lesson. Okay, so somebody nicks your mobile phone, what do you call that? Inconvenient and a bit of a shit. Right, okay. So you would put, would you put that in the petty crime class? Yeah, probably. Right, so no phone boxes on street corners anymore, so you can't ring up. And most of us don't have a, while we do have landlines, we actually don't have that physical thing called a telephone. So your partner has a heart attack and you have got no means of ringing for an ambulance. And so your partner dies. Bit morbid, I know. So now what do you call the theft of that mobile phone? Because inadvertently, that mobile phone theft has led to a death. It has led to a death. You are right. And while he's still not a murderer, I suppose that is manslaughter. But when he stole that phone, he wasn't thinking about anybody dying or harming anybody. To him, it's just a phone and it's worth a couple of bob. Yeah, but that phone wasn't his to take. No, it definitely wasn't his to take. And it has caused a death. I do yeah. agree with that. Yeah. I, I think I'm a little bit too black and white because I, I, I kind of wonder now. I mean, obviously, you never know what, what you will do in that situation. But I think no. based on that cold, hard fact of people in prison, and I know that this is possibly going to cause a bit of controversy, I think I would just shut the door and walk away because there's well, a reason why they're in there. It is a difficult one. And in the book, to be honest... They did lock the gates. Yeah. But what they did was they thought the army was going to go in and take over. 
because they were sort of mopping up the aftermath of the solar storm and trying to like feed people and manage people and stop the looting and the rioting and because nobody can phone the police anymore. So it's yeah. sort of, there's no cause and consequence any longer. So it's really, really difficult. So what they did at the prison was there were two rival gangs in the prison. You have to remember this is Ireland. You're right, okay. So what they did was they sectioned off the prison. They locked all the gates in the middle and all of the cells on one side of the prison, they gave the keys to the internal cells to the prisoners. Okay. And on the other side, they gave the internal keys to that side of the prison to the prisoners so that they could all wander in their own half of the prison without just coming together and killing one another because they could because they're going to be frustrated, they're going to be hungry, they're going to be frightened, they already hate one another because of politics, etc. So, and then they left the prison, locked the front doors, left the grounds, chained the gates and left them to it and hoped that the army would turn up at some point. Wow. And they had like two days worth of actual food and that's all they had. So everybody was absolutely terrified. I mean, we, we sort of read these stories... And I love reading the different stories that we do read. Mm, so do I. The thing is, with this book, it wasn't about, well, it was about everything that was written, but it was so thought-provoking that it makes you think about all the stuff that's not actually written, all the stuff between the lines, all the moral dilemmas that you know the logistics of that you then start thinking about inside your head. What would you do? What should they have done? Would you do it any different? Are you appalled at what they did? But what would the alternative be? It, it was, you know. Well, I mean, we've only got to go back to March of last year, don't we, really, to think about moral dilemmas <laughs> where, you know, come on, let, <laughs> let's be honest. Yeah, come on, let's be honest. Okay, go on. You know, where the, the, the shelves of the supermarkets were stripped of pasta, tomatoes, beans and bog paper. Okay. Yeah. Now, so, how yeah. now? How was a how was a, a a stockpile of pasta, tomato, beans, and bog paper going to help you battle coronavirus? Well, it wasn't, and it people wasn't. panic. Yeah. So all we've got to think about is morals. I mean, I, I I was actually in a supermarket just before lockdown, and I saw two people squabbling over a four pack of toilet rolls. Really, get a life. I'll tell you something though. The way that we as a whole, humankind behaved with the pandemic. I'm not saying I did or you did, but people as a whole, um, with with it might as well have been bloody looting because people were completely inconsiderate of everybody else's needs. Of course they were, yeah. It was like this six packets of pasta there, I'll have all of those. I don't need to worry about five other people that we could help with those. No. That's absolutely fine. I'll have all of them. They're mine. I mean, I, I read an article... Yeah. Not, not very, And it was about a, maybe a week after lockdown, I read an article, and I can't remember whereabouts this person was based. I do know that this person was UK-based. Yeah. And they'd gone out shopping and they had bulk bought loads and loads of stuff. I mean, obviously, this person had got an awful lot of money. Yeah. But what happened was she'd stockpiled and bought loads of fresh food. So things like fruit and vegetables and stuff like that. But it's going to go off. Well, she ended up, I think, dumping about maybe 60 or 70 quids worth of this food in a bin because it had gone mouldy. Now, she was never oh. going to eat, and never going to eat it in a month of Sundays. So, really, books like this are not that far away from actual normal human behaviour. Exactly that. 
one of the characters in the book was a shopkeeper. So sticking with what you were saying. Um, and he was being really conscientious and trying to be really caring to the community that he lived in. So he knew he didn't have a generator. He had a frozen section and he had chillers. And he knew that he was going to have to throw all of that food away. It wasn't going to be any good to anybody. So he did what any moral person, I would say, would do. And he gave it to his customers that came in the yeah. shop. You know, you get in this, I know it's cash only, but if you want to take something from the freezers or the chillers, please help yourself because it's going to go in the bin otherwise. And, you know, he's feeding yeah. his local community. But even doing something as kind as that so it's not wasted and it's sensible thing to do, the people in his community still took complete advantage. If they didn't have enough cash because they couldn't go to an ATM any longer to get the bit, the bits that they needed or they wanted for their families, nappies, formula, for example, for babies, they would say, well, I'm taking it. I'll give you the money when the banks are working again. I'm taking it. And he'd say, well, you can't just take it. And they fought him for it. And in the end, it escalated to a point where they killed the shopkeeper to yeah. take the goods out of the shop. And seriously... If the pandemic had got any worse and we had run out of supplies, wouldn't we do the same? That's what would have happened. It would have degenerated into that. It's a scary thought, isn't it? It's what a very you'll scary do thought. if you are frightened for your family. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a really, really interesting book. And I noticed that it's kind of book one. So I'm looking and, and thinking that the author's going to be writing more. He's left it open ended. I know you said that there was the power didn't come back on at the end of the book. so No, it didn't. It no. wasn't a happy ending type scenario. No. My humble opinion, obviously. I think he tried to keep it as realistic as it as... could be under those circumstances, but still highlight how bad it could be, but how there are people that try to keep their moral compass pointed in the right direction. Mm. But yeah, there was no happy ending in that the electric did not come back on. But how would it if it's global? That's true. It wouldn't. You, you know, you are right in that. It's not. That's not going to happen. So on a, I'm going to say a brighter note, but I don't think it is really a brighter note. The book that I chose to read this week was by Ros Morris, and it was called Ever Rest. Like two words, ever. Yeah, rest. Ever Rest, which is really good because it is all about Mount Everest. Well, not all oh, about Mount right, Everest, I but it, it kind of goes back twenty years, and it's it's based around a rock band and Mount Everest. And this is what I had to say about the book. Whenever I open a new book to review for the podcast, I feel excited, apprehensive, curious. And this book initially involved all of those emotions, especially as it's the first one I've reviewed for season four. I didn't question the book title until I was about halfway through the book feeling a little bit stupid when the penny dropped about the title Everest, Everest, the place where Elsa's fiancé Ash went missing 20 years ago in a mountaineering accident, which changed the lives of all around him. Is this the place where Ash would ever rest? Hopefully the book will answer that question. Elsa is now in a relationship with Elliot. I actually found their relationship quite strange, a marked contrast from Elsa's previous life with Ash which was music and fame and fortune. Hugo, the other half of Ashbirds, is now a recluse living in Nepal, in the shadow of the mountain where Ash went missing. 
Elsa is still waiting for a phone call to say that Asher's body has been found 20 years later. The novel delves into the lives of Elsa, Hugo and Robert, who was a session musician with the Ashbirds. I'm not sure if I was supposed to have any empathy or even sympathy with Elsa, but I didn't. I felt more sorry for Elliot, who was made to tread on eggshells because of Elsa's fragile state by everyone around her. The past 20 years, Elsa hasn't been able to grieve privately for Ash. But what does come across in the book is Elsa's frustration at people walking on eggshells. On more than one occasion, she gets exasperated at the way people behave around her, especially when talking about the Ashbirds' music. Elliot does try to get Elsa to talk to him about it all, normally at totally inappropriate moments, which made me view him as quite self-centred. However, the reality to Elsa and Asher's relationship wasn't what the last 20 years had developed it into, as Elsa was actually picked out of the crowd at an Ashbirds concert for Ash by his bouncer. I'm not giving anything else away about the story. For that, you will have to read it yourself. What I will say, though, is that the book is very well written, ensuring that the reader has enough information about the past to be able to follow the present. The author, I feel, makes some assumptions that the reader has a level of intellect as the novel is very fast-paced, initially jumping about from one thing to another. It also deals with mental health issues and delves into the psyche of the characters. As I said at the beginning, I was excited to read the book. However, at the beginning, I was a little bit disappointed as it started off a bit abstract, which doesn't fit into my ordered mind. However, I soon got used to the flow of the book within the first few chapters. The characters could have been lifted from the pages of New Musical Express. In some strange way, it made me think about the Sex Pistols. Why, I don't know, because it's nothing like them. Maybe it's just me harking back to my 20s. I suppose it depends if you are into a certain genre of novel as to whether you would pick this up to read. I would recommend it, but it's not like reading. You do have to concentrate. But if that's what you're looking for in a book, I heartily recommend it. Interesting review, April, but I think I need a little bit of a reading if you're all right with that, just because I think I need a little bit more to know a little bit more about the book. Elsa had learned to be wary in crowds, especially in situations when people had time to look idly around, waiting in a queue, riding up the escalator on the tube. These days, 18 years on in 2012, being recognised was less likely but it did happen, and it was a nuisance. Sometimes a person standing beside her would speak, Hello, how are you? Their eyes flicked searching her face, said, I know you, please jog my memory. She would smile and reply, I'm good, nice to see you. Sometimes they knew exactly who she was. They said a bold, smiling hi, and used her name. Expecting her to make things comfortable, perhaps to entertain them. It wasn't comfortable. When she met Elliot, he didn't do any of those things and that was nice. Elsa met him when she was making a painting for an office in Shoreditch. She walked into the boardroom to measure a wall and photographed the lie of the light on the bare bricks. A guy was doing something with a laptop. She called hello, not looking at him, and he said, Are you the facilities manager? I think that chair's broken. I'm not, she said, walking the tape measure down the room, writing in Evernote. I'm here to do a painting. So sorry, he said, I'll leave you in peace. On her next visit, a few days later, she saw him in the kitchen. He was searching in the cupboards for a coffee mug. 
She was there to find a paint match for the lime green fridge, a colour needed in the picture. She said, Broken any more chairs lately? He said, Sorry about that. I'm a contractor. I don't know who anyone is around here. He opened the dishwasher and extracted one dirty mug and then a second. For her? A considerate thought, but was it all it seemed? He placed them in the sink with water and detergent. I'm Elsa, she said. Guess there weren't many Elsas, or Elsas of her age. After her notoriety, there were Elsas everywhere. If names were a contagion, she was patient zero. I'm Elsa, she said, because then this guy might realise why he felt the urge to wash a mug for her as though he already knew her. Is that Australian, he said, because of her accent. The name's Cornish, short for Demelza. My mother liked the Poldark series in the 1970s. A detail about her that the newspapers reported widely. She'd done so little in her life, but there's nothing else they could write. The guy didn't say, oh, Elza who, or you're surely not Elza who. He said, I'm Elliot. How do you like your coffee? He must wonder why she talked so much about her name. It embarrassed her to set tests like this, but she couldn't stop herself. Thank you for that. Very interesting review and a reading. It does leave me with quite a few questions. So remind me again, it's called Everest. Is that Everest as in two words or Everest as in the mountain? No, it's Everest as in two words. And and like I said in my review, I was kind of halfway through the book before the penny actually dropped. Ash was on Everest when he had his mountaineering accident. And 20 years later, they haven't found it. I mean, the book does go into more convoluted explanation about bodies and people being found on on Everest you've got to think about Elsa who has been waiting 20 years for a telephone call to say that they found his body so ever rest on Everest okay fine I think well Um, that's what I took from it anyway it might not be correct (laughs) yeah yeah and in the end is he dead or does he come back or has he faked his death or has he done a runner do we do we know what happened to Ash We do know what happened to Ash, yeah, but I'm not really going to go into that because I think that people need to read the book. I will tell you. Oh, God, you mean you're not going to tell me? I'm not going to tell you, no. Well, I might tell you off podcast, but not on. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. So, Elliot, then, how how long after Ash disappeared on Everest did she meet Elliot? Uh, 18 years, 20 years. So, are they married now? I don't really want to give too much away, to be honest. Okay. It's a compli- it's a complicated relationship. The essence of the book is that this per- this person has has kind of been hanging around Elsa, waiting for twenty years for a phone call to 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 say that that Asha's body's been found, and people act around her like she's this fragile little thing, and it's everybody else around her that as as kind of building it all up. And it, get, it makes me laugh because all of these people are still in touch and their lives are all intertwined. And to be honest, I think the only thing that's keeping all these people still in touch is the fact that there's this body on a mountain. Right. So is that the premise of the book then? The book is essentially about whether Ash is dead or alive and how everybody reacts to the fact that it may or may not be dead for 20 years after the fact. Yeah, but it also goes into a lot about their recordings and their music and, and what happened. and So, so it's, it's all about the Ashbirds Ash and Birds? their music. Yeah, and their music. Right. Okay. I mean, it made, it, there's, there's a guy in, in there, um, the bodyguard, and following on from that bit that I read, Elliot and Elsa go out for a meal. Elsa gets a phone call whilst they're sitting eating 
And then she just chucks 20 quid on the table and wanders off, runs off. Elliot goes chasing her and they do end up back at her flat. And they're in her flat and they're having a conversation. And all of a sudden the door opens and it's Asher's minders, bodyguard, manager, whatever you want to call him. And he just walks in. And 20 years later, he still has a key for Elsa's place where she lives. How long were Elsa and Ash together before he went up Everest? I can't work out from the book how long they were together. Um, but there was a, a little bit in the book that says that he will be coming back from Everest because their their life was all about bare feet and love beads and love making. So it's all, it's it's very abstract and very sort of flowery, powery type thing, although it wasn't, it was set in the 80s slash 90s, I'm See, assuming. That strikes me as a little bit strange because if it's all happy, clappy, hippie, free love type thing, then I'm a bit irked by the fact that you said that Elsa was chosen for Ash by his bouncer. At a concert, like she was just, you know, here, have this one to make love to. That was what it was all about, because what happened, if you read the book, what happened is that that's what Ash's behaviour was. So he'd, he'd do a concert and, and his, Steve, I think his name was, would have a look round the audience or pick up one of the groupies and, and Ash would take the groupie to the after concert party and that'd be it, he'd never see him again. But that didn't happen with, with Ash, even though she was chosen by Steve, to be Asha's plaything for the night, I think. Oh, my God. What a way to behave, though. To just I mean, go and choose some random woman out of the audience. Here, come and be a plaything for an evening and like it. Yeah. Because if he did that all the time, then Ash really should be having some sort of um, medical checkup. <laughs> it's a book, not real life. Having slept with somebody different at every single bloody concert is done by the sounds of it. Yeah, so the, I mean, it was the 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 history and the backstory that the sort of the the way that the author gave information about what had happened in the past, yeah, made it really easy to follow and to understand why the present was like it was. But you say they ha it did cover mental health issues, and it did because if you think about Elsa and all her issues, and then you've got Gina who is married to Robert who was the session musician, who was screwed over by the band. And, and they, they've all got, got issues and hangovers from their past and what's happened in the past and what happened with the Ashbirds. So they're all dealing with their own individual issues. And, and the author highlights those issues and does deal with them quite sensitively. But you do sometimes feel like you're living in a mishmash of mania. The Ashbirds? Was yeah. it Ash? As the front man and the rest of the band was made up of females. No, it was Ash and Hugo. And was it, why were they called Ash Birds? Hugo's surname's Bird. Oh, that makes more sense. I had a vision in my head when you were talking about it and doing your reading of Robert Palmer in that music video where all of the um, his backing band were females all with the hair scraped back with bright red lips and short black dresses. Do you remember? I remember it? that, yeah. <laughs> I had a vision of that in my head while you were talking. So, yeah, it makes more sense that the other person in the band was somebody bird, Hugo yeah. Bird. I did think there was one little tiny quirky touch where in your reading 
she referenced um, Evernote that she was using when yeah. she was measuring the room. And I thought, Everest, Evernote, that's a little bit of a quirky nod at. Yeah. Do you remember Evernote? <laughs> I, I do remember is Evernote. Is it still around? Yes, it is. I think it's got like an elephant as an icon. It has, yeah, or it had. Because it's like Evernote, sort of, you don't need to forget anything ever like an elephant, I'm guessing. Ah, right, yeah, good analogy, that. I'm only guessing. Obviously, I wasn't there at the conception of the app. No, that's true. I don't think it's a book I would ever have picked up voluntarily. I'm glad I read it. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're glad you read it. I am glad I read it, yeah. it's. I don't think it's a genre that I'll ever pick up and read again. You need to have concentration. It's yeah. not a book to read at the side of a pool. I won't read it based on your review and your reading. I don't really think it's my cup of tea. But we live and learn. Sometimes... We pick up books for this podcast and we never would have picked them up ordinarily and we've loved them. And it's it's like finding treasure. Yeah, it is. I mean, this is a gem, if that's your genre. Yes, absolutely. Everybody's different. So, a couple of different books then that we both picked for this week. They were quite different, weren't they? Yeah, I must admit I'm looking forward to my next book that I'm reading because I think it's more up my street. It's more the sort of genre that I'd read. What are you reading next? Well, actually, my next one that I'm reviewing is The Porter by Rachel Parsonage. So I'm on a roll with my books this season, all stuff I really enjoy. What are you reading? My next one is by Patricia Fernberg-Stoner. It's called At Home in the Pay Dot. Now, I quite like that kind of thing, so... I'm hoping it's about her life in France and, and all the quirks and everything that come around that. But before that, we've got flash fiction, haven't we, on our next one? We have, yes. The next episode will be the 16th of July, so two weeks today. And the writing prompt has been sleepwalking. Yeah, haven't we had a few submissions for this already? Yes, we've had a few submissions in, some really interesting reads. Uh, last Sunday, I sat and put my feet up. I had a day off work and I just sat and read lots of flash fiction stories and it was a brilliant thing to do. Really enjoyed myself. What, not submissions, but just flash fiction stories that are out there and published? Yeah, exactly that. We've got our writing prompts and our flash fiction stories to write, plus reading other people's that are submitted to us and choosing which ones are our favourites. But also, I think if I keep reading other people's flash fiction and other anthologies that I'll get, I don't know, it'll broaden my horizons, if you like, or give me a a better knowledge of. Mm, I fully understand where you're coming from there. I think it's something that I might have to do, but um, like I say, I want to get me uh, me nose into this book that I'm reading for our next review. When when are we next on air then? When's When's the flash fiction coming out? 16th of July, so two weeks today. Pretty good. Yeah, I can't wait looking for that. looking forward to it. Me too. Have you got yours done yet? Not entirely. I have to say I am struggling a little bit, not so much with the story, but with the writing of. Okay, in what way? In that I'm basing it on, because I, I am a sleepwalker, and it's all part of a recurring dream that I have about ships in the night and running off to harbours and not wanting the ships to go without me and... And I'll I'll get up and I'll move things around the house or I'll be found standing on windowsills or stuff like this, weird stuff like this. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to incorporate this because it's all like just 
perfect stuff to write a story about sleepwalking is all my experiences and to write a story about that. So I started it, but apparently living it and writing it down is not necessarily that much of an easy thing to do. So I'm struggling no. a bit. No, I think I understand where you're coming from. I mean, I've got a story about Patrick and that's as much as I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Has Patrick got anything to do with the spider that inspired this story? No, I'm not telling you. Not at all. But I'm looking forward to it. Yes. So we will see everybody two weeks today. We will. Bye, guys. See you all later. Bye. Thank you for joining us. Now you've had a listen, why not pop over and join us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Or if you want to send in your stories, email us at submissions at bearbooks.co.uk. Thank you.